of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is hour one of episode 553. It's me and Jason today, and we are going to be covering computer hacking. It's a vast topic. We've kind of narrowly decided what we're going to cover, and we've added a little bit that's just outside the realm of hacking, but it should be an interesting episode. Uh, also, I have to leave my phone on. Uh, Jason will edit out what he can, but if something gets caught, I apologize. Typically, the phone would be off. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Oh, and a pretty cool good morning. So I'm already feeling the benefits of going back to the original one show a week that we deliver on Wednesdays. I have already got significant reading done. I've gone back to hierarchies and some other things uh, when I had become so busy Plus, there were health issues in the family. I had been working on the commonality that I had noticed from the works of like the Rosicrucians and Rudolf Steiner and Greek and Roman myth. And I began to realize everybody's talking about the same thing here. So I will be getting into that big as we move forward. Uh, But it is such a pleasure to be able to get back to reading, uh, which I have always done. Uh, but we had gotten so busy there. And what was it? You know, I, I think I told you it was four months, Jason. The last book I had read cover to cover was four months ago. And that was Yogananda's book, uh, which had been recommended to me, which is quite an interesting book. Anyhow, shifting over to the topic at hand, you want to add anything in before we jump in? Well, looking at the stuff, it's definitely interesting and uh, actually kind of entertaining in a way just because of all the ways that this concept, these concepts, I guess I should say, because there's a lot to it, have gotten into mainstream culture and different people have different views on what computer hacking even means. You know, what's interesting, Jason, is the rate at which our whole lives shifted over to computers. At first, I don't think anyone had any view of what was about to happen. They were happy with the free tools. We even had the CEOs telling us, oh, you got all this free stuff, but all your privacy has gone. No one believed it. But look, how long did it take? I mean, it was maybe a decade, I'm guessing, about a decade. We had already been headed this way, but now absolutely everything is on computers. So what we're about to talk about is a new level of nonsense that we have to deal with in the world. Uh, In the old days, you had to keep track of your wallet and your keys, right? Well, even though there's about 10 years between us, we were still both born into an era where computers were giant mainframes with spools of tape and punch cards. Because even by, oh, I don't know, the late 70s when I was very young, computers were just starting to be something that the average person could if they wanted to mess with. But you had to have a lot of skills to be able to do so. You know, my life path more than once tried to steer me into computers. It was the 80s. I went to the local community college because back then in California, it was basically free. I think your biggest expense ended up being your textbooks. And I took a computer programming course, got in there, and there were these machines that were bigger than refrigerators and punch cards. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Look at all this work we're doing to get this simple thing done. This is ridiculous. No one's ever going to do it. And I left two more times in my life. I would end up being drawn back towards computers. And of course, I ended up taking one of the very first what they called IT courses to get my degree back in the day. But back then, IT meant internet technology. And as I got even there, None of the so-called professors knew a damn thing about the internet. They were all multimedia people, basically, who'd been pulled over. So we ended up teaching ourselves. But with that, let's jump in. Computer hacking. And again, you know, people don't even really agree on what that actually means. So we have a few definitions. Hacking is an attempt to exploit a computer system or a private network inside a computer. Simply put, It is the unauthorized access to or control over computer network security systems for some illicit purpose. (laughs) So let's just put this on the table. We'll get we'll get into this more. Consider all the computers that are made. Where are they made? Think about what I'm saying. Think about all the back doors and everything we know get put into computers. But isn't it a bit silly to consider 
that we're enemies with China or we're this with China at the highest level, all of this stuff, most of it is being built in China, just to put it on the table. I would be very surprised. I mean, what do you think, Jason? Is there a chance anyone listening has a computer on their uh, desk right now that wasn't built at least partially in China? Yeah, that's not very likely. While there are parts made all over the world, a large chunk of them are made, just to make a blanket statement, somewhere in Asia. Yeah, think about what that means. You know, you're talking about your town hall. You're talking about probably if I went up to the state government here in Rhode Island, I would walk in and find computers that had been primarily made or a lot of it made in China. Anyhow. Well, the big deal with that is most companies, especially in the modern era, are using off-the-shelf parts, meaning something that's already mass-produced, and then they put their own thing together, brand it, and sell it as their own thing. But in reality, what's inside the thing is not their own thing. It wasn't too long ago. Remember all the complaints back in the day when, oh, Photoshop is getting hacked by China and there's nothing that can be done about it. All the Hollywood movies are getting pirated by China and then flip-flop. Now China makes it all. They don't have to steal anything. The next definition is cybersecurity. This is the state of being protected against the criminal or unauthorized use of electronic data or the measures taken to achieve this. All right, well, let's just push in and get to some meat and potatoes. A hacker group is a team of decentralized and skilled cyber criminals who work to infiltrate and exploit networks to make a profit, make a statement, or just cause mayhem for their own amusement. Some even aim to do good by exposing security flaws and teaching others how to fix them. These hacker groups can be categorized into different types of hackers as follows. Black Hat. These are stereotypical cyber criminals who work to break into personal networks and devices to steal sensitive data for profit. White Hat. These hackers break into systems to detect security flaws so that entities like businesses and governments can address them. And Gray Hat. These individuals belong to groups whose main purpose is to hack for fun or entertainment. I don't think many people realize that the idea of hacking actually probably in my lifetime started with phone systems. And even in the, what's that movie, the guy who never works, Ferris Bueller's Day Out. No, 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 no. Uh, is it War Games? Yes. Where he, he goes into a payphone and he just does a simple hack to use it. Well, people can look into this and it's actually quite interesting. The hacking that was going on as the phone systems were beginning to shift, but in my lifetime, I have known a number of hackers. Some of them are my good friends that were probably black hats at one point uh, who actually were hired by corporations later, became probably what's called a white hat, and they were paid ridiculous amounts of money for their skills. So the supposed cyber criminals get hired on uh, to corporations and other places, even government to bring their skills to the table, and all of a sudden it's legitimized. The first digital computers were built around 1943, and things even remotely like hacking and cyber attacks would have been challenging for anyone to execute for about the first 20 years or so after their invention, due to the fact that only small groups of people had access to such computers. At the time, they were enormous electronic machines, and the small amount of them that existed early on weren't networked together in any way. Only a few people had any knowledge of how to operate these technological behemoths, so this made any sort of security threat essentially non-existent. Despite this, the theory that underlies the concept of computer viruses was first made public in 1949 when computer pioneer John von Neumann presented a paper titled Theory and Organization of Complicated Automata. In this paper, von Neumann speculated that computer programs could reproduce themselves. In time, he would be proven quite correct. It almost feels to me like malice was a forethought here. I mean, why name it a virus? You know, that's a, that's a biological term. It almost feels like we're looking at part of the same game being played out in advance and the plan going on. But I don't remember exactly 
when the first browsers came and I could do a lookup. But what I do remember was when Netscape was on top. And right before that, I think it was a browser called Mosaic, maybe if I've got that right. And there was a period of time when primarily the EDU, the universities, seemed to have the most interconnectivity, and they just started to get what might become a browser. Uh, At first, I don't think they had images. Slowly, that began to change, and then all of a sudden, browsers hit, and it was a big deal. I remember it well. And this harkens back to Microsoft doing its dirty deeds to basically take over the market. They screwed over Netscape. And by the time they were called to account, it was too late. Netscape had been beaten to hell. But I mean, that was not that long ago. That would have been in the 90s at some point. Do you remember the onset of Netscape, Jason? Do you even remember Mosaic? I definitely remember Netscape. That was mid 90s. So there were two more uh, that I think were predecessors that I recall. It would have been, I think it's Veronica and maybe it was Gopher. And I think these were text only, but this was primarily rolled out through the EDU type places, universities. This was had not been rolled out for the general public. And that's a telling thing too, the way the internet got rolled out to the world. When the concept of hacking first started, it was not actually thought of as all that serious. The hackers were not even known as hackers yet, but merely considered to be practical jokers. The very first hack is said to have happened in the year 1878, when the phone company, Bell Telephone, was started. A group of teenage boys who were hired to run the switchboards would disconnect or misdirect calls. A lot more involving the phone company would happen decades later, but we will get there. There it is. Uh, The wink that the original hacking started with the phone systems. It's a bit astonishing they're going to claim 1878, but malice aforethought. If I had to ask you, Jason, what I remember of the internet coming to be mainstream in any way was probably AOL when it first started to show up. I think you logged on with a DOS prompt still at that point, maybe... I forget what version of Windows it would have been, Um, but I would estimate 95, 96 was when the most technical among us began to adopt it and it began to trickle in. But get this, remember the movie Hackers Mm -hmm. with uh, Angelina Jolie? uh, What's the guy? Sick boy, Johnny Lee Miller. Guess what year that came out? 95, I think. There you go. You're good. And guess what the date is? Wait for it. September 15, 1995. Computers were not even uh, that mainstreamed yet by 95. I'm just saying. And they're already pumping out the movies. Well, I think the big change would have been Windows 95. Because before that, you still had to do some DOS prompting and things like that. Windows, I think, 3.1 or something like that. Whatever we had when I was in college around 91, 92-ish, it wasn't as user-friendly as the complete graphical user interface design of Windows 95. And I think I think that's when it all really started. Windows 95 really just normalized it all because everything could be done from the desktop then. There it is. And in the movie, they've got Penn Gillette, the well-known magician, of course. For someone who hasn't seen that movie in a long time, if you go back and realize this is 1995 and the things they're putting on the table, you can see how much planning went up front. But Rose just did a correction for me. The Mosaic browser came out in 1993, the first browser to allow images embedded in text, making it basically uh, a very popular browser. Uh, The improvement came with Netscape Navigator, which I remember well at my first big, where I thought I was going to become a millionaire internet startup, uh, Netscape. We had to test all the major browsers. So Netscape Navigator was among them. Uh, The date I think Rose found on that is 94. And of course, AOL, which I think took a playbook from, have you ever heard the story that one of the first Windows operating systems was put in the seat of a stadium for everyone who went there or something like that? If that's, <laughs> no. if that's true, it's genius. But AOL does a similar thing. And I remember this well. They just started mailing oh, the yeah. disks to everybody in 1993. And that tells you. What I remember was AOL was the main deal in town and things like ICQ came a little bit later. That was a chat service. 
a play on words. I seek you, I think is the play. But anyhow, 93, they start mailing these discs. I'd say by 95 or 96, AOL was a major contender in the average home that had gone online. The term hacker, as we would think of it today, was first used to refer to computer hacking at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, commonly known as MIT, in the late 1950s. Hacker referred to people who explored the limits of computer technology and would find ways to modify or improve the existing computer hardware and software. In the early days of computing, hacking is said to have been more about curiosity and experimentation than any sort of malicious intent. That's because people's lives were not yet stored this way, nor were all the systems controlled. But you and I did an episode, I don't remember which one, where we showed that MIT was on the list of universities that was absolutely infiltrated and taken over by places like the Alphabet Organization, CIA, real close to World War II. So I'm just saying, so much of what gets rolled out is a forethought and a plan. And again, that movie from 1995, how are they already putting all this together in 95? Just some average guy making a movie. I'm just saying, if you go back, you can begin to see how much was known before the general public even started to get involved. One of the first known instances of computer hacking occurred around 1955, when a group of MIT students known as the Tech Model Railroad Club began experimenting with the school's new IBM 704 computer, which had been introduced in 1954. Although still utilizing vacuum tube technology, it was a huge step up from its predecessor, the 701. Because of this, the students were fascinated by the computer's ability to perform complex calculations, and they soon discovered that they could use it to control the switches and signals of the school's model railroad system and began altering the train sets to make them perform faster and differently. A few of the members are said to have transferred their curiosity and rigging skills to the new mainframe computing systems being studied and developed on the MIT campus. The IBM 704 computer also helped set some standards for the years to come. The programming languages Fortran and Lisp were first developed for the 704, as was the SAP Assembler, Symbolic Assembly Program, later distributed by Share as Share Assembly Program. The first computer music program, simply called Music, was also developed on the IBM 704 by computer music pioneer Max Matthews. I think the last time I heard Fortran talked about in mainstream might have been uh, Y2K. Uh, part of the argument being put forward was, oh, we did all our dates wrong in the code and everything's going to break and there's a million lines of Fortran and all this other nonsense. For those who haven't caught on, if you take Y2K and convert it numerically, it is 9-11 verbatim and it is rolled out to the world right before 9-11, the real deal, gets rolled out. Freaking is a slang term coined to describe the activity of a culture of people who study, experiment with, or explore telecommunication systems, such as equipment and systems connected to public telephone networks. Manipulation of phone systems was done with the use of various audio frequencies. Freak Freaker or Phone Freak are names used for and by individuals who participate in freaking. This is, as far as can be determined, very much a thing of a bygone era. And when they spell freak, they use P-H instead of F. That's too cool for my school. I don't remember anything about freaking or any of the likes, but already, look, they're tuning into frequencies. And really, if you consider the internet, and the reason I'm making a big deal out of the movie Hackers or when people went mainstream, when the browsers came out, um, this is all a forethought. They, like all the big changes in our world, they had a good grasp on it before anyone in the normalized world of mom and pop going to work. They had a very good idea before any of this gets rolled out, and I am convinced that it was rolled out in a very particular way. And I think also the Netscape idea and the Microsoft idea is part of it. 
So Microsoft clearly is doing illegal things to this place. And by the time they get called to account, guess what? Place is ruined. The competition that originally stood up saying, hey, you can't do this to us is basically ruined. And this is the old uh, Highlander idea. There can only be one, right? To this day, we have two basic operating systems. To me, this has been controlled all the way down the line. And as we get into the idea of hacking, the fact that we basically have Apple and PC uh, is going to be a big deal because it has been determined that every single system that goes out has a back door, which is required by whoever the hell controls at the highest level. The origins of phone freaking is thought to trace back at least to AT&T's implementation of fully automatic switches. These switches used tone dialing, which is a form of in-band signaling, and included certain tones, which would trigger various functions in the phone system. One specific tone used was 2600 hertz, which caused a telephone switch to think that the call had ended, which then left an open carrier line. This could then be exploited to provide free long-distance calling as well as international calls. At that time, such calls could rack up quite a bill and was one of the ways the phone company made a good bit of money. This 2600 hertz tone was discovered sometime around 1957 by Joe Engracia, a blind-from-birth seven-year-old boy. Engracia had what is generally called perfect pitch, and he discovered that by whistling the fourth E above middle C, which is a frequency of 2637.02 hertz in A440 tuning, would stop a dialed phone recording. Unaware of the consequences of what he had done, Ingracia called the phone company, asking why the recordings had stopped. Joe Ingracia, who would later go on to take the name of Joy Bubbles, is considered to be the father of freaking. So if you begin to break down the hertz, which we've done in basic, I guess it's called Pythagorean numerology, where you just add them, like 2600 hertz would be 2 plus 6 is 8, and you use the rule that I have been developing of three, six, and nine, which is backed up based on the things Tesla said, uh, you can begin to see the intent here. Plus, where are we? We're in a 440 tuning. But back in the day, Jason, we, me and my friends had realized that a new piece of technology had come out and we were so secret spy driven and we were going to use it. What it was, was a cassette recorder that you could put anywhere. It was a micro cassette. So the small cassette recorders. And when a noise happened, it would begin to record. And so we were secret agenting all this stuff, doing things we shouldn't have done. And by accident, one of my friends who was convinced his girlfriend was cheating on him one day realized he could hear the phone beeps on the recorder, which had been set not too far from the phone. And that became a form of hacking where you could simply hear the dial beeps made, and then all you had to do was record it, pick up the receiver, and in the mouthpiece, play back the beeps, and it would automatically call the number uh, called before. And this is the early onset of the automation. That is the kind of cusp from the old rotary dial phone and the new push-button phone, which occurred in my lifetime. And what's funny is if you show young children now the old rotary phone, most of them can't even figure out how to use it. <laughs> yeah, I do remember in the 80s when the push buttons started becoming very normal. Do you know what I nagged my mother to get a tone dialing phone for? To be what? able to call into radio stations to win prizes quicker. Oh, <laughs> it's funny you should say that because I had a friend who became king of that using some of the methods I just told you. And he was regularly winning tickets and everything else. He developed these hacking schemes to bump other people off, to spam uh, the phone line so that he was the only one to get through. He was the king of that and was regularly getting concert tickets. It's funny you should bring that up. Another early freak, William Bill Acker, who went by the name Bill from New York, also began to develop a rudimentary understanding of how the phone networks worked. Bill discovered that a recorder he owned 
could play the tone at 2600 hertz, and he would get the same effect that Ingracia had. Another fellow by the name of John Draper discovered through his friendship with Ingracia that the free whistles that had been given out in boxes of Captain Crunch cereal at the time also produced a 2600 hertz tone when blown. This provided him with his nickname, Captain Crunch. This whistle allowed him or anyone else with the toy and the knowledge to use it, the control of phone systems that worked on single frequency controls. One can sound a long whistle to reset the line, followed by groups of whistles, a short tone for a one, two for a two, etc., to dial numbers. This was actually a bigger deal than most people think. To this day, you can look up the Captain Crunch whistle hack. And again, they flat out told you in the prior bullet point that they were using 440. So what it basically means is since it's already in 440, all of our musical instruments are in 440 or most of them, people began to realize that it's not that hard to replicate the tone because it's already recorded in 440 or set up to play in 440. While some folks had fun with their whistling, single frequency only worked on certain phone routes. The most common signaling on the then long distance network was not single, but multi-frequency controls, which had the slang name of Marty Freeman for their tones and their use. The specific frequencies that were needed to operate the internal phone systems were unknown to the general public until 1954, when the Bell System published the information in the Bell System Technical Journal in an article describing the methods and frequencies used for inter-office signaling. The journal was supposed to be intended only for the company's engineers. However, it soon found its way to various college campuses across the United States. With this single article, the Bell System gave away the keys to the kingdom without realizing it, and the intricacies of the phone system were now at the disposal of people with a knowledge of electronics. Freaking would be quite the thing throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. I don't know if I'm buying that they did it on accident. Here's the thing. All these years, what we called Ma Bell, so Bell Telephone, was a monopoly. And of course, back in those days, and this is what happened to Microsoft, you can't be a monopoly. But all these years, it's just fine. And then one day they say, oh, we're taking you to court. You can't be a monopoly. We're breaking you up, Ma Bell. And that's not too long after what we're talking about. And then it is said, you have to share all these networks you built with everyone else. Well, why was it okay for all those years? What I'm saying, malice aforethought. They knew the internet was coming. They knew the networks were going to be important. And to me, this is the pre-prep planning. But did you have, you're old enough to remember a payphone. That's another thing. You could put payphones in front of the youngest children these days. And again, they don't know how to use it. Uh, they have no idea. The idea that you would, well, when we were young, you put a dime. By the time phones went away, you were putting in a quarter or more to use them. But did you have any hacks uh, from pay phones? Uh, I think war games is one of the things that got us started. And by the way, they quickly added a plastic piece, if I remember correctly, so that that little hack couldn't be done so easy. But did you have any hacks for the phone system, Jason? No, but I remember when war games came out, all the kids were just like, oh, wow, that's so cool. So what most people living today don't realize is calling long distance. And that meant like if you were even going to call, uh, say, San Diego to L.A. back in the day, that might be considered long distance. And it was a heck of a cost. No one talked long distance for very long. There were all these jokes all the time about how much long distance costs. So I think it was war games that got us going. And we had determined back on old construction sites when they used to, I think it was for an outlet, they would punch a steel plug, which ended up being just about the right weight and size of a quarter. So we would collect those and put them into the phone. The other thing that we had learned to do, and this didn't last for very long, and I forget why, you could take one of those slugs, drill a hole in it, put a very thin fishing line on it and slowly put it in till it registered, then pull it back out and you could make long distance calls. 
But everything we're talking about here, in my view, up to the point where they force Ma Bell to quit being a monopoly, for some reason, it's okay that for the previous decades, it's a monopoly. They break it up. It's all in preparation for the onset of the internet, in my view, all pre-planned. In the 1960s, computers were still colossal mechanisms, being giant mainframes that took up entire rooms. They were still the sort of thing that very few people had access to. They were immensely expensive and would have been the property of organizations like large businesses, universities, military installations, or government institutions, such as NASA. To be blunt, they were huge, extraordinarily costly, difficult to operate, and liable to mechanical failure, and it could be said that they were used primarily by professionals or computer-oriented students. The first computer password was created in 1961, when Fernando Corbato and his team at MIT created the Compatible Timesharing System. To ensure that users could access only their own files and programs, the team created a system of passwords that allowed users to log in and access their personal data. Software issues also existed in these early computer systems, and in 1965, William D. Matthews from MIT found a vulnerability in a Multix CTSS running on an IBM 7094. This flaw disclosed the contents of the password file. The issue would occur when multiple instances of the system text editor were invoked, causing the editor to create temporary files with a constant name. This would inexplicably cause the contents of the system CTSS password file to display to any user logging into the system. Talk about a bump for hackers, right? How long do you think it took before people who are truly hackers to catch on to this and just start collecting passwords. But here's the thing about everything we're talking about. In my point of view, everything was being shunted aside, changed, put into court, broken up, whatever was required for the coming of the 90s. This is my point of view. You're not going to look this up anywhere. And what basically we know is true of our world is when a new invention comes along, it has a use. Like I've invented this new shovel and it catches on. Why does it catch on? Because it has a handy use. The internet is the exact opposite of every other technology that has woken up one day to become an important part of our world. Everything about the onset of the digital world was hard. It took more energy. It wasted resources at a level I can't even begin to tell you. Before the days of backups, data was lost all the time. What actually happened in my first job was the world was saying, oh, we're going to computers now. We're going to save all this money on paper and all these other reasons why it was good. The exact opposite was actually true. We wasted more paper by, I don't know, 20 times or more than we would have if we were just in the regular course of a business day for a corporation. We did things like struggle to get video down a phone line, which was never intended to take that kind of a data stream. So what did we do? We shrunk video down to the size of a postage stamp. We destroyed the frame rate to the point where I'm not even sure you can call three frames a second video. It's like a crappy flip book. We destroyed everything about the video. In other words, all these years getting video better and better and better, all of a sudden we destroyed it to simply get it jammed down a phone line. And this is one example of all the things we did. It's almost like the powers that be knew the internet was coming, but they were going to let the world be the R&D. They were going to let the world waste their resources, time, and effort to get this implemented. And I don't know if I described that, but do you see what I'm saying here, Jason? What, what we did was we changed the world based on a technology which was not handy, which was not usable. And as a matter of fact, the earliest computers, most people couldn't even figure out what to do with it beyond making a picture or a spreadsheet. You see? I, I mean, do you get what I'm trying to lay down here? Well, it could be said that they used the power of the masses to figure out how to do stuff. 
But what I'm saying is the invention didn't have literally beyond clip art or making a nice picture you could print or making a spreadsheet. The companies that were actually marketing the earliest computers had to figure out ways to try to convince people that it was worth it or you you know to be used in some way and all I'm pointing out is that almost every single major invention that gets adopted by the world it's because it does something better the internet was not that in the beginning it was the exact opposite it made everything more difficult it I, i'm just i don't know how to describe it what I'm saying is it was planned in advance and then it was shunted out to the world and the world was used to help overcome the issues at hand, not like a normal invention. Right. That's what I'm saying. They wanted things to be a certain way, to go in a certain direction. So they just let all the people who are using this stuff figure out how to actually accomplish it. They didn't know, but you guys figured it out eventually. You know, there's another thing about this, and I often think about this, is how much data is left in the world that's not digitized right now. And the reason I'm pointing out is like 100 or 200 years from now, will there be like a dark ages, a perceived dark ages, because there's a period of time when everything wasn't ported over, scanned and made digital and available And the reason that got me thinking about this is, as I pointed out, I have friends who at one point probably would have been classified as black hats, but then converted over for their skill set and are paid handsomely to work for the people that make everything they do okay and legal. I had a background check done on myself. There is no record of my life before 2001. Hint, hint, hint. What's unusual about my life is when other background investigations are done on other people, one of the primary sources of data is derived from their social media footprint. Mine was non-existent. Luckily, from the onset, I had problems with it. I wasn't going to put my life out. And I knew, I had a feeling that this was going to be something I didn't want to get involved in. The proof of that is I was a webmaster for years and did not create even a YouTube account until the fall of 2013 because I was pressured and pressured to get my footage like the Lunar Wave posted. Point being is starting in 2001, every place I'd worked and other major things were known, but there was absolutely no social media footprint. And the person who I had do this informed me that that is the biggest piece of information someone like him looking in this way would be looking for because the social media tells them everything. So just putting it out there, think about what it means. No footprint prior to 2001. Also by the mid-1960s, growing popularity of time-sharing computer systems that made resources accessible over communication lines created new security concerns, something that just would not have existed before. With security concerns growing, several of the United States' leading computer security experts held one of the first major conferences on system security in June of 1965. More conferences would follow, and at the spring of 1967 Joint Computer Conference, many leading computer specialists again met to discuss system security concerns. During this conference, computer security experts from the RAND Corporation and the National Security Agency all used the phrase penetration to describe an attack against a computer system. Of course they did. And JCC, you got to get your 33 in there. But consider this as well. As we were in that weird transition era from everything's on phone to everything's going to computer, uh, there were a number of accounts of people who worked for the phone company realizing that every transmission in a major city was being shunted off into a room no one had access to. There are quite a few accounts of this. I'm sure you can still look them up. And what was happening was in these halcyon days where no one had caught up with what the technology actually meant, the people implementing the technology knew full well and were just taking everything. One of the papers I wrote in 99, when I had finally gone back for the last time to get involved with computers, maybe I should have thought twice, but I did what I did, was about 
programs like Phalanx, Carnivore. The claim back then in the 90s was that every transmission of every kind was being collected and nobody was believing it. And yet you can still go back and look up these accounts of mostly, I think, Pacific Bell and places like this where employees blew the whistle because they saw the main line for all data coming into the country or for a major city had been ported into a little locked up room and they knew damn well what it meant. It meant all, everything coming through a phone line was being collected. Talk about hacking. Is there a higher level of hacking than that? I would ask Jason. (laughs) Well, in the fall of 1967, the first known incidents of network penetration or hacking took place when members of a computer club at a suburban Chicago area high school were provided access to IBM's APL network. IBM, through Science Research Associates, approached Evanston Township High School with the offer of four 2741 Selectric teletypewriter-based terminals with dial-up modem connectivity to an experimental computer system, which implemented an early version of the APL programming language. Some students used and quickly learned the language and the system and were free to explore the system, often using existing code available in public workspaces as models for their own creations. After a while, curiosity drove the students to explore the system's wider context. This first informal network penetration effort was later acknowledged as helping harden the security of one of the first publicly accessible networks. (laughs) So let me get this straight. IBM, which is PC, has an Apple network (laughs) all the way back in 67 APL. Uh, That's a bit interesting. But case in point here, Jason, that I am saying what they did was they forced a technology which could not lend itself to being handy enough to be adopted. Here we are up to the point where we're talking about modems. You and I are old enough. For those who are not old enough, there used to be a thing called a modem. And look it up. You'll hear the weird noises that it makes. And what you would do is you would dial into a computer network using your landline telephone, and it would make all these weird noises. But here's my case in point about the switchover from a world that gives a damn about people, from a world that adopts a new technology because it's handy, because it makes something easier or allows us to do something we couldn't. What this did was got you onto the computer network using the phone systems. But if anyone called your phone while this was going on, it broke the connection. Do you remember that, Jason? Yeah. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Well, after a while, they would just get a busy signal. But early on, it would hang up on you. For quite a while, actually. And the other thing is, is because to get beyond that, you had to usually get new tools, a better modem or or whatever, spend more money. But my point is, is before that era, what people thought and customer service and like if you call the place to complain, you were taken seriously 90 something percent of the time. And what we're looking at here is the changeover, the subtle social changeover. Well, yeah, here you can get online, but if anyone calls your phone, it's going to break your connection and interrupt everything you're trying to do here. The Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, or ARPANET, was the first wide area packet switched network with distributed control and one of the first computer networks to implement the TCP-IP protocol suite. Both technologies became the technical foundation of the Internet. The ARPANET was established by the Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA, of the United States Department of Defense. ARPANET development began in 1966, with the first node of ARPANET being established at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, in 1969. Over the next few years, additional nodes were added at various universities and research institutions, including the Stanford Research Institute, the University of Utah, and MIT. By 1971, the network accommodated 15 nodes. As further software development continued, enabled functions included remote login, file transfer, and email. The network expanded rapidly, and operational control passed to the Defense Communications Agency in 1975. 
ARPANET was the birthplace of many of the technologies that are now essential to the modern internet as it is used every day. The first email message was sent over ARPANET in 1971, and the first online chat system was developed on the network in 1973. ARPANET was also the first network to use the TCP IP protocol suite, which is still used today as the standard for internet communication. And isn't it interesting that if you do a simple Wikipedia search for TCP or Transmission Control Protocol, they will inform you that the introduction was 49 years ago in 1974. And while we're at it, the chat is one of the things that really began to change the view you know, and I'm serious, up to this point, you're making pretty pictures and spreadsheets. You could type without needing whiteout, but really people were looking for ways that this damn computer could actually do more. I still remember the first time I saw chat. It was on AOL. I believe it was 1994, maybe a year after AOL, to use their language, language penetrated the market. I don't know why they got to get all porny about it. But anyhow, for the first time, a friend of mine who was up in Northern California uh, showed me that you could open up this little window. His name was on top. My name was on the bottom. And I could hear him on the phone typing and his words in real time popped up on my screen. And I was blown away. That one little thing. And when that started to be available, that's I think that's one of the big things, Jason, that really began to push mainstream use is when chat became available. That's the way I remember it. Chat was a big, big thing like ICQ and all those. And there was something that friends of mine used in the very early 90s when I was in college. And they kept using it for years, even after bigger and better tools came around to become normalized. What was the first chat that you ever used? That one, whatever the thing was that we had in college, it was all obviously text-based. I can't remember what it was called, but it was... AOL's version? No, no. This is actually years before I ever heard of AOL. This was around 91-ish. If I think of it, I'll mention it, but I, I just can't remember anymore. Telnet, maybe? Ah. So the first one I ever used was AOL. But you see, this is 94. We still lived lives. Computers, like you use them... But not very often, you know, you didn't shape your whole day around it, certainly. But a few years later, and it was when I had gone back to school, ICQ came out. And ICQ, you got to wonder what happened to it. I should have looked up because ICQ was a big deal. It had a boatload of users. And what ICQ did in my life was for the first time, I was meeting people from all over the world and talking with them and forming relationships. It was like a line in the sand where the world before the people I knew I met, I might get an introduction. There was almost nobody in my life that I had met because I got on a phone call with them and I was friends with them and I had never met. But all of a sudden with ICQ, I had, I don't know, hundreds of friends according to ICQ. And this is a huge social shift. Now we have friends that we have never met and they might be in Egypt. They might be in Britain. They might be in a place we've never been. And I don't think it can be overstated the shift in culture and society that this marks. And for me, you know, I'd be interested to hear from people listening to this. What was the first chat you ever used and how did that affect your life? Do you mark that as a massive turning point? So you're 10 years younger than me. Do you feel like chat was a massive cultural turning point, Jason? Absolutely. For any different reasons or simply because now I can meet people that I never would have met and actually consider them to be friends? Yeah, I just remember people sitting around for hours having certain times like, okay, this is when we're going to meet. And then they would just talk for hours and hours. It was just a really big deal to a lot of people. This is all throughout the 90s from what I'm remembering. So I would have marked it like 90s, I want to say 90s, I actually think it might be closer to 98. I, I should actually look up when ICQ came to be. And I remember when the AOL chat thing got really big. That was a huge deal for a lot of people for a couple of years. 
All right. So it is, it's originally developed by an Israeli company called Mira, Mirabilis. And I start to remember this in 96. And I also remember people complaining in 98, AOL buys it. I think it was 97. And the other big thing that happened with chat is now culture had been changed in the way that I've described. But then all of a sudden, this major new thing happened. You could share files through your chat system. And that, to me, the chat and the file sharing probably pulled so many people into the computer world um, at that point. That's just my observation. And the last point for hour one, Creeper was an experimental computer program written by Bob Thomas at BBN in 1971. Its original iteration was designed to move between DEC PDP-10 mainframe computers running the 10X operating system using the ARPANET, with a later version by Ray Tomlinson designed to copy itself between computers rather than simply move. This self-replicating version of Creeper is generally accepted to be the first computer worm. Creeper was a test created to demonstrate the possibility of a self-replicating computer program that could spread to other computers. The program was not actively malicious software as it caused no damage to data, the only effect being a message it output to the teletype reading, I'm the Creeper, catch me if you can. To deal with Creeper, Reaper was the first antivirus software designed to delete Creeper by moving across the ARPANET. There's no reliable record of who actually developed Reaper. Some versions claim that it was Bob Thomas himself, while others claim that it was the work of Ray Tomlinson, the creator of email on ARPANET. I'm going to say a thing, and part of it is my observation, and part of it is from firsthand knowledge. They created the problem to introduce the solution. And part of this is because I can rub two brain cells together and see the history of what's gone on and how these things get introduced. But the other part is because I have met people who told me firsthand that some of the early big deal viruses were created by the company that magically within 24 hours later had a solution. And all of a sudden you had to have antivirus. And what was going on with many of those programs is a heck of a tale. As a matter of fact, that tale could be a whole episode. But Jason, we're going to wrap up our one uh, part of the realignment and sharpening of the podcast is that we're not going to arbitrarily end at two hours. We're going to let the conversation go where it will. But do you have anything to add in hour one? Um, and what it, well, it was McAfee. McAfee was the big one. But uh, how many people out there are old enough to remember when all of a sudden, if you got a computer, you needed that antivirus, right? You didn't get one with the, out the other. And I'm here to tell you that that was all malice aforethought as well. What would you add, Jason? Oh, it was a huge racket. I remember all that stuff back when I used to use PCs. I haven't had problems like that in a very long time. Generally speaking, not that they can't have viruses, but... Most of the viruses all throughout the, uh, well, 90s, 2000s, primarily were written for PC, although there were the occasional ones for Apples. Why is that? That makes absolutely no sense. So we live in a world where there can only be one. I think most people forget this is a mainstream narrative, whatever the truth of it is. There was a point where Apple was supposedly going under, and I think it's claimed that Microsoft bought in 45%. And then everyone was up in arms saying things like, oh, the same chips are going to be, you know, the, the difference between Apple and PC is not going to be there anymore. But it is claimed that Microsoft had a hand in ensuring Apple made it to the point where, you know, it was going to be around. And the, the, the reason given was so they couldn't be perceived as a monopoly. But back to what we're talking about, how can it possibly be that there are only two types of computer for most of the world, Apple or PC, and only one of them has a virus problem? That makes zero sense. You know, people using the Apple platform have the same information as anyone else. Maybe it could be argued that the Apple is not on, you know, as many big mainstream networks. I don't know. 
but it just makes no sense that the big concern for viruses has always been if you were on a PC. It was very split when I was in college. We had the IBM lab, and then we had the Mac lab. Doesn't that imply that the truth about viruses is that most of the time it's not just some malicious dude with skill out in the world, but that it's organized at some level? That's what it points to in my mind. Anyhow, I don't want to pull us too far off. We're going to prep up for hour two. And again, we're not going to arbitrarily end hour two anymore. We're going to let the conversation work out. So if it's a little early or a little late, whatever it is, it's going to be. Anything you want to add before I wrap it up, Jason? Well, we're not even out of the 1970s yet, but you can see how computers in general are very much making their way into the social norm. Even if you watch old TV shows and things like that, you'll see computers as ridiculous looking as they are with their big spools of tape and stuff like that. But it was generally accepted that, hey, computers are here. That Everybody uses them for important stuff. Well, it's no secret what I think. I think that it was a known quantity long before it was ever introduced in the world. And the people who knew about it said this, man, if we could get everything on computers, we could control the whole world. And where's my evidence? I point you back to Frank Herbert, who was thinking about and writing a little book called Dune in the 50s, publishing it in the early 60s, and gives a very offhand but important idea in the Butlerian Jihad, proving that somewhere in the world, someone was aware the level at which computers can matter. I'm here to say that I think that the people who have been socially engineering were drooling to get the world to go digital because then it could be controlled more readily without boots and bombs, without all these other things that have been required up to this point. And that's my point of view. If you have a different point of view, share it. But that's where I'm coming from. Anyhow, that's going to wrap up our one of episode 553. Uh, hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the two full two-hour or two-hour-plus episode. Uh, members get access to all the forums. They can create forums. They get free interaction of all comments under every episode, and they can watch the film, shoot the moon any old time they like, that is a two-hour film covering all my telescope work. It may turn out that there are some important discoveries there. Time will tell. It has 10 awards in the world. With that, we're going to wrap up Hour 1, and I hope to see you logged in as a member for Hour 2. And I'd like to wish everybody, everywhere in this world, a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.